Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Tim Chavez from Faith Matters. In this episode, we're diving into one of the questions from our Big Question series. Terrell Givens invited Joseph Spencer, a philosopher and professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University, to talk about the question of Book of Mormon historicity. The claim that the Book of Mormon is a translation from ancient plates written by Hebrew people who immigrated to the American continent has been challenged from its first publication, and conclusive confirming evidence has been equally controversial. So what is at stake in either affirming or questioning the historicity of the Book of Mormon as the modern translation of an ancient record? Could it be some other form of inspired writing? Or must we accept the book as being exactly what it claims to be? How do we deal with seeming challenges to its historicity? Joseph Spencer is prominent among a new generation of Book of Mormon and biblical scholars. He is the editor of the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies and the author of eight books, including First Nephi, A Brief Theological Introduction, published in 2021 by the Neil A. Maxwell Institute. You can find more from our Big Question series by heading to faithmatters.org and clicking on Big Questions from the main navigation menu. And watch out for much more Big Questions content as we move throughout the year. Thanks as always for listening, and we really hope you enjoy this conversation with Terrell Givens and Joseph Spencer. Hello and welcome to another installment of uh, Conversations with Terrell Given, sponsored by Faith Matters. I have with me in the studio today Dr. Joseph Spencer, who is Assistant Professor of Ancient Scripture at Brigham Young University and one of the foremost scholars of the Book of Mormon in the Church today and a well-published author on that and other subjects. Uh, Joe, good to have you with us today. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks, Terrell. Uh, our topic today is, uh, broadly speaking, the Book of Mormon. And uh, in a little more focused way, we want to we want to talk about historicity and the Book of Mormon. So I'd like to start off with uh, asking if we can do a kind of brief overview, maybe, of the centrality of historicity to conversations about the Book of Mormon. Uh, see where we are today on that subject, and then uh, I think in a more focused way, we want to talk about what is at stake in affirming the Book of Mormon as a historical text. Yeah. So uh, I guess we could start off by by pointing out, for example, that when uh, the first door approach that we know of in the church, right, was probably Samuel Smith's <laughs> as he traveled with the Book of Mormons in his knapsack and uh, would, would uh, greet interested parties or uninterested parties with a query, would you like to have a history of the American Indians? Yeah. <laughs> So um, how central was it then? Why? And uh, wh- what's been the evolution in broad strokes in the, in the decade since? Yeah, I mean, there's no question that it's uh, central from the beginning. Uh, I mean, yeah, this is, I think, throughout the 19th century is the most common way of presenting the Book of Mormon to the world uh, by Latter-day Saint missionaries. This is a history of the indigenous peoples of the Americas. Yeah, in Brazil, when we proselytized, we, we had the old... The old edition of the Book of Mormon that had photographs of, mm-hmm. of like, Mesoamerican yeah. ruins, yeah, and so that was that yeah. was a common door approach even yeah. then. Uh, and you can find, I mean, the publications toward the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, when church presses, magazines, and such are starting to publish something like Book of Mormon scholarship. This is a focus, among other things. 
Um, but in the 20th century, I think what sort of cements it as the question in Book of Mormon studies, Book of Mormon research scholarship, uh, is frankly Fawn Brody, right? Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History, which is 1945-46, uh, sort of raises in the most public way, the most uh, sort of concerning way for the church, the question of whether the Book of Mormon can be traced directly to Joseph Smith and his 19th century environment. And that sort of brings out the big guns, right? That's what seems to have spurred Sidney Sperry and Hugh Nibley and Wells Jakeman as sort of founding figures of a genuinely professionally trained uh, version of, of Book of Mormon studies. And from there to the end of the 20th century, it's largely the only question that's being asked. Yeah, yeah. So talk to me a little bit. Why do you think that the Restoration constructs itself on this peculiar foundation of, of a kind of historical claim that is unsubstantiatable. In other words, you know, we have the parallel to the Bible. There, there's nothing mysterious about the biblical texts, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I mean, we don't have any of the originals just as a function of their antiquity. But we can trace a kind of manuscript history what kind of sense does it make, uh, and, and we can only speculate, I imagine, but what kind of sense does it make for a prophet to proclaim to the world that he has this ancient text, but he's not going to show it yeah. in a public way, yeah. except in a very, very limited fashion? Um, but why? It, it seems to me to pose a whole series of faith challenges that, that don't have any particular precedent in yeah. the Christian tradition. Yeah, I'd say there's one precedent, though not a textual precedent, because um, as I see it, the Book of Mormon itself makes this a, a question, makes this a theme. I'm thinking here of Second Nephi 27, uh, where Nephi, looking at the moment of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, he talks about the book and the words of the book, and he says the book is going to be sealed and hid from the eyes of the world, but the words of the book will be in circulation, and the learned will demand to see the book, but it won't be accessible. Uh, and so this seems to me an interesting sort of reflection on this very question within the Book of Mormon. And the if there's a kind of why that Nephi gives there, it's that he says, well, uh, well, and he says in the name of God, uh, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever, and I'm not going to do anything in the world except by faith. Uh, and if that's a same yesterday, today, and forever, it seems to suggest that there's supposed to be a precedent. And I take it the precedent there is the scandal of the resurrection. We have a few witnesses, just like we have a few witnesses of the plates, uh, a few witnesses of the body of Christ after his resurrection. But other than that, this really is a kind of gesture of faith. It has to be taken first on the grounds of uh, a certain kind of conviction without evidentiary basis. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. And I've tried to find a kind of analogy there as well. The one, one interesting difference, though, is that in the case of Christ's resurrection, there is no deliberate obscuring of the evidence. Yeah. It's just a function of history. Yeah. Whereas in this case, it's like, Seems well, I have these, but I'm not going to show them yeah. to you. And uh, and so let me see if I can kind of segue into a related question here, sure. which has to do with the nature of faith and the demands that faith is making upon us. Um, you know, it's common in the you know in the schools like the New Atheists and and other um, others to to define faith as belief in the absence of evidence, mm -hmm. which of course is a is a disingenuous definition of Anemic. faith. Anemic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but what is the principal function or purpose 
of this particular challenge to faith? I mean, mm. is it supposed to differentiate? Or who, who's it supposed to differentiate in terms mm. of potential disciples? Um, because it is creating right fissures uh, even within the faith community today mm -hmm. in terms of the legitimacy of those historical claims. I mean, the language that, and here I'm thinking of Ether 12, the language that uh, gets used there is humility, right? Uh, if you create a situation of weakness, you can't demonstrate the Book of Mormon in a kind of absolute strength. Uh, you're thrown back into a position of weakness, but weakness is given as a kind of gift in order to, to create humility. And then only those who humble themselves, only for them is grace sufficient, is the language you get in Ether 12. Uh, I wonder if that's a nice way of putting it, though we tend to read that in sort of individual devotional terms, am I humble with respect to my relationship to God or something like that, but intellectual humility might be a really important version of this, right? Does it create the possibility of distinguishing among those who relate to the Book of Mormon uh, so that there are those who relate with a kind of intellectual humility, a recognition that, I don't know, I don't know exactly how everything's supposed to work and those who are just so sure of themselves uh, that they can somehow take these scraps of evidence for or against and decide conclusively there I know in yeah. some kind of scientific way yeah um, I, I like that I think that's good uh, I'm wondering if, if we go back to the analogy with the resurrection of Christ as mm -hmm. a scandal um, if the Book of Mormon doesn't function in a similar way mm -hmm. it, it strikes me that um, many religions are predicated on a series of teachings that one can assent to, uh, one can take with varying degrees of certitude or assent. But the resurrection of Christ is, is a claim that one can't be indifferent to, mm -hmm. right? One has to either find themselves in a place where they're asking really tough questions and opening themselves to really confirmatory kinds of experiences. Yeah. Or just dismiss, and and it seems that the Book of Mormon, the gold plates function in that kind of a, a, a way. It's it's as if it's going to it's going to thrust itself upon us with the audacity of these claims, and force us uh, to confront the possibility of confirmatory revelation. Yeah, um, you think that's do you think that's right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, uh, taking scandal in the etymological sense, it's a stumbling block, right? Yeah. Something thrown in your path that you either trip over or see rightly. Uh, that seems to me right. It sticks in the craw of modernity. <laughs> and I take it that's what Nephi is getting at when he says, look, this is a kind of deliberate provocation. God takes these plates and hides them from the world. Yeah, yeah. And in the context of modern epistemology, that's... That can't but be a provocation. Okay. Yeah, I like that word. I think that's that's really apt here. So there was a time um, when uh, the uh, the Travels in the Yucatan mm -hmm. by Catherine Wood and Stevens came out when that came out around 1840-42. And, and there was this brief window of euphoria by <laughs> yeah. Joseph Smith, right, and early saints. They thought, we've got it. Here's, it's all coming. Here's all the evidence we could possibly want. And, of course those arguments will wax and wane over the years, but there, there seems to be another kind of high point of LDS confidence in, uh, in historical corroboration when we get into the 50s and mm -hmm. 60s with the work of Hugh Nibley, yep. and then the early fa Farms Foundation, right? You have the, the celebration of Chiasmus mm -hmm. and uh, Lehi's journey recapitulated. Um, do you think that, that those kinds of approaches were healthy? 
and helpful? That's a really good question. Um, Nibley's a super complicated <laughs> figure uh, intellectually, right? His project is much more complicated than I think it often appears on the surface. Uh, and so I wonder, looking back even now, what he would say if he were with us, right, about exactly what he was up to and what its stakes were. Um, but it, it did certainly sort of match the spirit of the age, right? The post-war era for Latter-day Saints is a time of immense growth and a certain kind of confidence, uh, certainly in the American scene, but also globally. Um, and there's a certain sense in which that, yeah, that sort of intellectual confidence matches well the general vibe of the church. Um, what's complicated is the sort of the long-term the long-term way that's played out uh, in the moment. I think it does lend in a productive way, a certain intellectual confidence. Um, but it was that confidence was in part because it felt like there was an unending stream, I think of evidences the next year, there was going to be another article in the church magazines by Nibley or, or whomever that was going to, uh, was going to show that there's still more and still more and still more evidence. Uh, and there came a point where, um, uh, the evidences seem to stop flowing. We've got these past ones, uh, and there's something about the slowdown that has a kind of cultural effect, I think. Um, so I'm not sure if it was a, a bad thing at the time, but I wonder if in the long term it's got a much more complex yeah. role it plays. Yeah. Well, this this uh, kind of evokes the image, right, of, of history as a two-edged sword mm -hmm. when it comes to religious belief. I, I recall that uh, around the year 2000, the Mormon History Association annual meeting uh the featured speaker was grant mcmurray mm -hmm. I think that's his name right the president of the rlds oh yeah yeah sure and uh I'll, I'll never forget he 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 opened his keynote with this kind of thunderous claim history as theology is perilous <laughs> and and we have to move away from this right um there's certain reasons why you could see why that argument would be appealing to, 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 to the RLDS and the aftermath of Joseph Smith's polygamy and all that. But, but that basic claim to, to tie theology to history uh, is perilous. There's certainly a, a truth to that. Right? Yeah. Um, and the general direction of liberal Protestantism, especially in the aftermath of the modernist crisis, of mm -hmm. course, right, was to kind of de-anchor religion from history. Uh, at least that was a fundamentalist. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. That was a fundamentalist response, right? Was to, to argue for a kind of transcendental, right, truth that isn't isn't pegged to history. Um, but there are limits to how far we can dissociate the Book of Mormon from yeah. historical claims, right? Just as is, if you take the historical fact of Christ's resurrection out of the picture, you really don't have Christianity. Right. So, so how how crucial is? Uh, the capacity to affirm the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Uh, how much leeway do we have? What, what are the stakes for the believer today? Yeah. I mean, I will say I'll have students come uh, into my office now and again, and they've been shaken somehow with respect to the historicity of the Book of Mormon. They've read whatever Isaiah problem or something, right? And there are legitimate problems, Yeah, right? there are things Which that we, we need to think to. about, right? Uh, and so they've been shaken, and they come in and they say, is it possible for me to remain a believing member of the church but scrap the historicity of the book? We're going to take this as a kind of divine book that nonetheless has nothing to do with ancient history. Uh, and the first thing I often tell them is, I can see theoretically how one might construct that position. Uh, I, can, I can see that intellectually. But practically, I don't know how often I've ever seen it actually work. 
Um, it tends to be a position one assumes um, as part of a journey that that's got a much more complicated set of comp- more complicated bearing, you might say. Yeah, let me ask you to elaborate here. When when you say it doesn't work, do you, do you mean it doesn't work because there's something internally uh, internally unsustainable about that position, or just as a practical matter, it doesn't it doesn't end up working? Yeah, I don't know if I've decided, right? Um, because I think theoretically I could see how one could do that. It's a it's a weird kind of faith from where I'm sitting, right? It's a it's a certain kind of faith that I haven't experienced, and so I don't know. But I can sort of theoretically envision it. Um, but practically, I haven't seen it work out, which makes me suspicious that there might be something deeper than just a kind of practical matter, given our conditions, given our setting, yeah. and so on. Yeah. But I'm unsure. Yeah, it seems to me that there are a couple of internal problems mm-hmm. uh, kind of endemic to that position. One is, I, I, I call it the Moroni problem, right, which is absent in the Christian um, paradigm generally. One doesn't have to believe that Moses appeared to anybody mm-hmm. and revealed the Torah. But Latter-day Saints do affirm that Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith. If there, right. were, if there weren't gold plates, then the story of Moroni implodes, right. and Joseph Smith wasn't being visited by Moroni or presumably any other angelic beings. Yeah. So the way in which Moroni bridges the history that he represents and the foundational stories of the restoration seems to me uh, hard to get around. So it seems to me that's one one problem. Yeah, and I'll, I'll riff on that for a moment. I think I think that's really sharp. Uh, and it seems to me that what I've often seen when someone wants to say, well, what if I just affirm the Book of Mormon pure and simple uh, without having to attach it to history? They tend to take the Book of Mormon as if it were a kind of unmediated gift from God. Right. And that's precisely to bracket Moroni. That would seem to be the only way one can try to make that move is by scrapping the actual story. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, the other problem that seems internal to, to, to the question is, uh, is simply the literary uh, organicity mm-hmm. of the book itself. There's a, there's a, uh, a seamless quality to it. It doesn't sound to me like it's a kind of hodgepodge potpourri mm-hmm. of historical kinds of claims and contemporary issues although i mean there, there's seen right there seems to be 19th century language at times emerges 19th sure. century themes there's there's a kind of internal consistency to it and thematically from the very opening pages um nephi uses the word made mm-hmm. I think six times i made these plates i made them for this purpose it's as if whoever authored the Book of Mormon is trying to make it impossible to deny the provenance. Mm -hmm. And uh, then just as a third example of this problem, I'd cite the small books themselves, right? Which have always been a kind of Mm -hmm. weird thing. What is it with guys (laughs) who say, well, you know, I got these plates and I don't have anything to say, but I'm going to give them to my son. And why, why? But what what we find the result of, of those small interpositions is, is an absolutely unbreakable chain mm-hmm. from Nephi to Moroni to Joseph Smith. And so it's as if we're looking at a Mona Lisa and we can actually document the history of trans- uh, transmission right back yeah. to, to, to Da Vinci. Um, so it seems to me those problems are, 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 are difficult ones. Um, 
Although, on the other hand, it it does seem that there are challenges mm -hmm. to affirming this text as a as a pure historical artifact of right. pre-Columbian times. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think uh, I think that's exactly right. The the sort of totality of the Book of Mormon, the the wholeness, uh, I think is is the biggest challenge from at least where I'm sitting. Right, is that uh, it really seems to be. A completely coherent project. And I think it's that's been hard to see, and in part because the focus of Book of Mormon studies for so long was just historicity. So we're looking for little bits and pieces of the text we can tie in some way to the ancient world. But uh, with more literary work that's gone recently and theological work that's been done recently, uh, it's become clear just how cohesive and coherent the book is as a whole, right. which makes it very hard to just take bits and pieces of it and take that as a spiritual message and bracket, right? Uh, right? The way this thing's supposed to sit in the world, right? Yeah. 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 So let me ask this from another, another angle. Um, Christians uh, are confronted with, with the historical scandal of the resurrection. And yet historians of Christianity and apologists for Christianity don't spend a whole lot of time trying to substantiate the, the, mm -hmm. the historicity of the resurrection. Right. Uh, I mean, people like N.T. Wright may mm -hmm. write incidentally to a, a general apologetic work. But I think it's, it's true to say, and this has been true since the first apologist, right, in the first centuries, I think of Irenaeus in particular, right, who said, you know, all arguments are really futile in the face of the transformative power mm -hmm. of the message. And so the emphasis in Christianity has kind of been there ever since, right? Mm -hmm. That the, the reality of Christ is manifest in how he makes God present to you. Yeah. Um, does, should, we, uh, should we find that the case is parallel with the Book of Mormon? So I think uh, the formula I've come to as I've thought about this is something like uh, using the phrase in the last analysis or in the last instance or something like that. Uh, the historicity of the Book of Mormon is absolutely essential to the Book of Mormon in the last instance or in the last analysis. Um, it has to be in some sense, it's essential. I don't think it can be got around for all the reasons we've been talking about. Uh, but if it's the if it's the entry fee, for the Book of Mormon, I think we lose the Book of Mormon. Um, so there's some sense in which that that move that tr traditional Christianity has made with respect to the resurrection is one we make, but we make with the understanding that it's only postponing the question of historicity or something like that. Um, we can't make historicity the opening question, but it does have to be a question. Um, so. So yeah, there's a sense in which I think I'd want to say with Christian apologists or translating Christian apologists into this context, um, the power of the Book of Mormon, its spiritual force and so forth, that's the entry fee. That's the first question. But that question doesn't trump or dismiss or dispense with the question of historicity. Right, right. Okay, well, let's talk about prophets yeah. for a minute. Um, the Book of Mormon is, is kind of like... Uh, in my experience, it's it's rather like what Churchill said about Russia, right? It's a it's a it's a mystery wrapped in a puzzle, wrapped in an enigma. Or, yeah, yeah. I got that order wrong. <laughs> um, there's something infinitely perplexing. Uh, it's as if one can never definitively make sense, right, of the totality of this text that mm -hmm. we have, because um, one seems to hear, as I said, right, traces of the 19th century. Royal Skousen has pointed out traces of 16th century mm -hmm. English. Uh, the, 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 right, there's a the phenomenon of these 
incredible chiastic structures and you know all the kind of nibbly resonances that we find with the with the ancient world are these these kind of disjunctions right what seems to me the uh, the absolutely undeniable reality of something that is profound mm-hmm. and divine about its 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 origins inspiration on the one hand and all of these kinds of fingerprints yeah. of of mortal interventions on the other. Do you think that that's a problem or do you think that to some extent that's the point? I think that's the point. Yeah. I mean, this is how I hear the language of weakness uh, in something like Ether 12, right? If it's applied to the Book of Mormon itself, uh, it has to be grace held in an earthen vessel, right? Treasure held in an earthen vessel. Uh, that the thing is just saturated with the divine and yet is uh, we can trace the st- the moments of its construction. Nephi's telling us how many years it is after they've left the promised land that he actually starts to write the thing. He tells us how long he spends on it. Uh, he's uh, You can find structures that organize the text that don't seem to be beyond the authors. They seem to be putting it together in very deliberate ways. Uh, you have interruptions in the voices of certain authors, let alone yeah things we can trace to this or that culture, whether ancient or a dimension of the translation in the 19th century or whatever. Um, the uh, We have human fingerprints all over the thing, but it seems to me that that's theologically exactly the model that Latter-day Saint theology gives us, right? Divinity only is born in and developed out of very deeply human circumstances. Although we have a we have a language, a kind of rhetoric of certainty and closure and fullness in our tradition that <laughs> For kind sure. of works against that, right? Yeah. And so I think... Uh, I think we condition ourselves as Latter-day Saints to think in absolute categories, yeah. black and white categories. Though the Book of Mormon should have taught us in the first place not to do that, right? Here's a book that's missing 116 pages that has a sealed portion we have no access to. Uh, even if you're just buying wholesale historicity and so on, the book is still a fragment, fractured, com- incomplete uh, by design and historical accident. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good point. Um, I'm always reminded in, in these instances of Paul's own account of his own visionary experience. Uh, kind of what seems, strikes me as a really remarkable admission when he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I, I couldn't tell. Yeah. <laughs> right? He seems to be saying, we, you know, there's, there are these moments of epiphany and these moments when we penetrate the veil uh, and we enter a kind of dimension of experience that isn't susceptible to the categories we're, we're used to working with. Yeah. And uh, it seems to me that one of the most remarkable documents in the history of the church is, uh, well, it's a series of documents. It's the, it's the facsimile edition of the Joseph Smith papers where we see Joseph Smith submitting his revelations to the editorial hand mm-hmm. of half a dozen colleagues. And it seems to me that this is an astounding kind of window Seriously. into the fluidity and imperfection and malleability of the prophetic voice yeah. where Joseph Smith and the official church is acknowledging, look, it's not about right a dictaphone that we <laughs> transcribe from God, but there is this imperfection to this process of revelation that is always striving toward a, a fuller, an, an ampler kind of capture of the divine the divine voice uh, let's see if we can't 
turn to a more personal note uh, sure. for a few minutes here. So uh, tell me a little bit about your faith journey yeah. relative to the Book of Mormon itself. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I have to confess, and maybe this is a terrible context to do it. I've never had the faith crisis everyone seems to have to have. <laughs> uh, that was never, I never had a sort of dark journey of the soul when it comes to the Book of Mormon. Uh, I developed a conviction regarding it very young. I'm in, in my teens. Um, and, uh, and from there just began studying it intensely. Um, so my faith in the Book of Mormon has grown out of just continuous study, a sort of early conviction, spiritual experience. Uh, but from there, just the harder I've pushed on it, the more it's pushed back. Uh, and early on that, I mean, relatively, um, I don't know, everyday sort of experience with the Book of Mormon. I didn't know what I was doing studying, right? I wasn't doing it in an academic way and so on. But over time, as I've learned the tools of scholarship and that kind of thing and push harder and harder on it, it always gives me more to think about, gets deeper and richer rather than flimsier and shakier. Um, yeah, I mean, so that's in the, the general trajectory of my experience. Um, and so in some sense, for me, all along the way, though I've read all of the arguments back and forth about historicity, all along the way, the question of historicity has always been more of a curiosity on the side than the central issue, because the book seems so profound simply in terms of what it's saying and what it's doing and uh, this kind of thing. Yeah. You know, um, it, I've, I've written in my own work how it's my impression that the Book of Mormon functioned far more prominently as a sign mm -hmm. than as a signified. In other words, it, it seems to have been employed by Joseph Smith and his contemporaries as an evidence of God's action in the world rather than as a repository of, of doctrine, yeah. right? Uh, I remember Brigham Young, right, reads it and he says that it comported with the New Testament in, in every significant way. Right. Well, so then why did we need it, right? right. Uh, becomes the question. And uh, I remember that Grant Hardy, another outstanding scholar of the Book of Mormon, said in response to that claim of mine, he said, well, there may be some truth in that, but if it was just going to be a sign, God could have used a pamphlet. Why, right. why 500 pages? Yeah. Uh, so as a as kind of looking back upon your life to date as a scholar of the Book of Mormon, but also as a believing disciple, what do you think is its signal contribution? Or just name mm. one or two that stand out to you. That's a great, really big question, right? Um, I mean, I, th I think Grant's right about that, that the... Uh, if the sacred sign hypothesis uh, were sufficient, then yeah, we could have had a pamphlet or a miracle or an event or something, right? Um, so there's something in these hundreds of pages that really makes a contribution. Uh, for me, I mean, in some sense, I'm still just in the thick of deciding what that is as I work on the text. Um, but a few overarching things. I think the Book of Mormon's theology of grace uh, is incredible. And I think it develops well beyond what we have sketched in the letters of Paul uh, and in a way that that is more explicitly attuned, you could say, or um, or more obviously compatible with the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith in Nauvoo and that kind of thing. The Book of Mormon has a much more nuanced and complex conception of grace. That's one thing I see scattered across its pages. Um, 
certainly it seems to me that it's for all the reasons we've been talking about in terms of historicity, it's got a much more rich and complex conception of the relationship between God and history uh, than we tend to read uh, into it. Uh, and, um, and in Mormon's writings, Mosiah, Alma, Helaman, Third Nephi, especially, there's a kind of tangle of, um, of the way that uh, politics and history unfolds and the rise of a church that has a complicated relationship to that. This gets worked out in ways that uh, people have pointed out in some ways, but I think we've only just begun to explore. But the biggest thing, uh, the thing that I spend the most time on myself and that, um, that I think just puts the Book of Mormon in maybe a fundamentally unique place in the 19th century context uh, when it drops on the world uh, is its conception of covenant, of uh, Abrahamic covenant and what Israel's destiny looks like about a kind of emphasis on the remnant of Israel rather than a certain sort of notion of the replacement of Israel by Gentiles, uh, by the way that it's interacting with Isaiah and, and doing all kinds of remarkable things with what's happening uh, across the Book of Mormon with Isaiah and so on. It seems to me that it has a, a, a kind of systematic project of re reopening and then reinvestigating the question of of what it means for there to be a covenant people at all in the first place. Right, right. And that language of covenant, covenant theology, right, would have been foremost in the minds of 19th century readers because there was yeah. an elaborate doctrine of covenant theology that the Book of Mormon contests yeah, and, and reconstitutes. Yeah, the Book of Mormon is in no way Calvinist, but that's the picture. The Calvinist yeah. picture is the picture yeah. on offer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I'll just share what I think is my uh, primary take away from the Book of Mormon, and it, it would be this, that, that it sets up the problem that we discussed at the beginning, right? It's this rock mm -hmm. in the middle of this smooth flowing stream, and, and we, can't, we can't paddle around it. We have to confront head on the absurdity and impossibility of these claims. And then the Book of Mormon gives us a map for how to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, to my mind, the most significant moment in the Book of Mormon has always been that first Nephi 10 and 11 transition where Nephi has heard his father relate the vision and, uh, and then he asks the angel, or he prays, right, for a confirmatory experience. And then he gets what I think is the most profound, earth-shaking question in the Book of Mormon when he says, well, don't, don't you believe your father? Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that at that moment, the history of Revelation as a concept takes a new direction, right? Because you've got any number of Old Testament scholars who, when they talk about Revelation, they will say, well, Revelation is the province of the prophets, right? Rev mm -hmm. The revelators are the prophets. And it's as if the angel is giving Le um, Nephi, right, that precedent and asking him a leading question. Well, don't you believe your father? He's the prophet and patriarch. And Nephi says, well, yes, I do, but, but. <laughs> I want to know for myself. Yeah. At which point the angel breaks into a hallelujah. Yeah. Shout. And so that seems to me that we are all supposed to see ourselves in that moment that, oh, I don't have to be a prophet. Uh, and this kind of confirmatory experience is open to me. And then we see that thread persist all the way through Moroni, right? Where to his mind, the most depressing sign of modernity will be disbelief and possibility of that individual revelatory experience. Um, so I think that's a, that's a deliberate, it seems to me, a deliberate 
and dramatic departure from what the Bible offers us as a pattern yeah. of revelation where we don't see it individuated in that way. It's worth saying that, that the promise in Moroni, the very famous promise about finding the truth of the Book of Mormon, one thing I find deeply um, interesting about the way Moroni words it, uh, as he's setting up the promise itself, he says, I want you to reflect on this book, having read it, and reflect on the how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men from the creation of Adam down until the time that ye shall receive these things. And it strikes me so interesting that the way he casts all of history there, it begins with the creation itself. But it comes to its end not at the second coming of Christ or at the gathering of Israel or the end of the world, but its culminating moment is the moment you, reader, pick up this book. All of history is shaped in a kind of individuated way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then that's the question – that's the moment on which this question of the Book of Mormon's truth hinges, right? Um, that seems to me to jive very well with what you're saying, right? That – uh, you can take what seems to be this big abstract history that's out there and the prophets, these big, huge figures are controlling. But here Moroni says, no, the whole history funnels into the question of will you, you find out? That moment. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Let me ask you one final question, Joe. Where would you like to see – it's a two-part question, I guess. Where would you like to see us go as a culture? Mm. relative to the place of the Book of Mormon in our lives? And where would you like to see Book of Mormon scholarship go? That is a great ahead? double question. Um, as a culture, that always, those kinds of questions always feel above my pay grade. Uh, I'm a scholar. <laughs> and, um, but uh, I do wish uh, we would simply as a people um, get to the point where we, we fuse our devotional reading, which I want to affirm, 10 million times over, but I want to see us fuse our devotional reading with some serious scholarship. And I don't know that that means everyone reading actual works of scholarship so much as a slowness and a care with the text. Um, I'd love to see that uh, happening in Sunday schools and in seminary classrooms and that kind of thing. Uh, even maybe just an ability to ask questions about the text so that it can start to show us its complexity and depth. Uh, we just have such a strong tendency to read a line at a time or a verse at a time and then immediately run off with the, an application nugget or something like that. But it seems to me uh, that our even our applications and our devotions would be so much the richer uh, with slow and careful reading. Uh, I, I think that's what I'd say about culture. As far as Book of Mormon studies, um, I, I guess I want to say I want to see what's happening keep happening. Um, you think we're in a good place now? Um, I good think direction. we're I think we're in a very interesting place. I'm always hesitant to decide that it's good. <laughs> um, what has happened, I think, over the last 20 years is that we've seen emerge um, two very different uh, – three, I should say, three very different styles of interpreting the Book of Mormon that have antecedents but have never been dominant or in the limelight. Uh, and these have arisen alongside traditional apologetics and uh, and things like that. So one is a literary project that is primarily being done by people outside of the faith, people like uh, Elizabeth Fenton or Peter Coviello and so on, uh, who are looking at the Book of Mormon to put it in conversation with post-secularism and so on. All of that, I want to keep going on just because I want to read it. I want to see what they learn and think about there, uh, even if they're not coming at it 
in a perspective of faith at all. There's also what I think Grant Hardy has ultimately been pushing for, which is to read the Book of Mormon as a volume of scripture in the context of world scripture. And that I think is really rich. And he has shown just how much can be dug out of the Book of Mormon that way. I want to see that go forward. Uh, and I'd love to see others do that as ably as he does. But the thing that I'm most invested in, uh, the third development here, uh, is theology in the Book of Mormon. Reading the text, which is a confessional discipline, it's to begin from the position that this religion is true, uh, and to then ask, so what? What does the thing actually say? And that's begun, I think, to happen in earnest in a few different contexts, uh, and it seems to me that the kinds of insights that are coming out of the Book of Mormon there are just spectacular. Uh, and it's because good theology depends on really good reading. It's made for a much more robust, careful analysis of the text as a whole and individual books as a whole, um, but also just really good theological reflection has come out of it. And that's uh, I'd like to see that grow and develop and become a much more robust conversation. And in part, I should these are my two answers to your two two parts of the question are connected because I think it's in doing theology with the Book of Mormon that something in the scholarly world might connect back to the average Latter-day Saints' interests. Uh, historicity questions uh, matter to average Latter-day Saints, uh, but you get too far down the archaeological road and they're just lost, unsure what we're talking about, um, for good reasons. Uh, and reading it as world scripture and so on will yield some insights for the average Latter-day Saint. But theology starts to touch on questions like, what does it mean to repent? Or what is what is the nature of Christ? And those kinds of questions being dug out of the Book of Mormon, I think, have some some cultural cachet as well as scholarly. Yeah. Well, thank you, Joe. And uh, thank you for your work uh, modeling close reading and uh, taking this uh, miraculous uh, book of scripture seriously. Um, thanks, thanks, Tara. Thanks for joining us today. And, Happy to be here. Thank you, and we'll see you all next time uh, for another episode. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening, and we really hope you enjoyed this conversation between Terrell Gibbons and Joseph Spencer. And as always, if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get a chance, we'd love for you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. It definitely helps get the word out about Faith Matters, and we really appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening, and as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.